Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. Alina is here today, but she's currently choking to death, so I'm going to introduce the guest she's got and found. She is much excited because today is World War II Day, and she has found for you Alan Malpass, who is a lecturer in military history at Bishop Gross Test University. Is that right? He is also an author. The latest book is British Character and the Treatment of German Prisoners of War, 1939 to 48, which is really exciting. Have I butchered your university's name? Oh, no, you, you say it how you see it, to be honest, so you read it, um, but I, I just call it BGU or BG. Brilliant. <laughs> Where does that name come from? It's um, Robert Grossetest, who was um, uh, Bishop of Lincoln, founded, a, founded the, um, was founded as a, a teacher training college. Um, I'm still learning a lot, of, a lot about the history of the university. Um, I've only started uh, back in July. But it's it's from uh, from him that they get the name. That's brilliant. I like it. But anyway, enough about him. We're not here to talk about Bishop BG today, are we? We're here to talk about prisoners of war and how we treated them. This is going to be really interesting. So let's start. I guess let's just start right at the beginning um, with the one World War Two one hundred one. So it begins on the 1st of September 1939. Germany invades Poland. Britain and France declare war on Germany a few days later. When are the first German prisoners of war in British hands? Uh, where do they get them from? And what was their reception like when they got to Britain? Well, um, just to just a little sort of um, preface beforehand. Uh, the plans for holding German prisoners of war in Britain, um, it was believed that the war was going to take place much like the Great War on the continent, but the um, the authorities uh, single out two camps: hmm. uh, Grisdale Hall in um, the Lake District, as well as Glen Mill in Oldham. And they don't think they're going to actually hold um, many prisoners of war. In fact, the prisoners that would be captured would be on 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 the continent in in, in sort of front lines in France, wherever yeah. they might fall. Um, so there wasn't any plans, and there wasn't really many prisoners that were captured um, during the sort of period of, of phony war. But really, um, it's the Kriegsmarine, the U-boat crews mm-hmm. that the uh, Royal Navy um, uh, engage and, and, and uh, capture, as well as um, uh, a few a few uh, German pilots of the Luftwaffe, um, and sort of in the first few um, months, sort of, you get sort of a slow sort of drip of German prisoners um, coming into Britain. But the first sort of reported in the press and to the public is on the 21st of September. Um, And it's just a small article which um, states that... um, 
a number of uh, a sort of uh, number of German prisoners of war were spotted at a train station, so in transit to to camp, and mm. a um, a woman shouted to them, "Hard luck!" To which the one of the Germans responded, "Ah, not so hard." As in, <laughs> actually, we're we're out the war. It's going to be it's it's all over for us now. So everything's going to be. But of gardening and agriculture and whatever else you can it, throw yeah. at us, and no imminent death. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's interesting to compare. So um, of First World War, obviously. So I think they. I'm thinking they came in at Southampton the first lot, and there were big crowds um, who wanted a rubberneck at the Germans coming in. Well, they marched them through the streets, so it was kind of a they were paraded um, down to I, I think it was Frimley slash Camberley yeah. where they kept them, wasn't it? So it it seems like it's a lot more low key. It's um, I'd, I'd say um, it is more low key, um, but the, in terms of the reaction of the small. A uh, number of people who, who would have, have seen them. It's very much the same um, mixture, and sort of the, the historians of the uh, First World War POWs in, in Britain have noticed it's this mixture of sort of um, curiosity um, and sort of a little bit of excitement, because um, it's probably the first time for many that uh, they've actually seen a German in the flesh. Um, so it did cause a bit of excitement, but it's 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 a it's a for both world wars and in this sort of the first months of the second world war, it is this sort of curiosity. Um, there's no sort of um, big disturbances, and it's I think yeah, like with the first world war, um, where um, on the continent when they were being shipped across the channel, there were you know violent uh, actions towards German POWs, but they sort of came to Britain and. There wasn't that violence was missing, so I think yeah. While the scale's a bit different from the First World War, it's a very similar sort of reception. So you've mentioned U-boats very previously, but on the third of December and '39, um, there were some German prisoners of war on the U-35. Can you tell us what happened? Yeah, so U-35 um, had uh, it sunk a few merchant ships. Um, Werner Lott, who was the the captain, um, the commander of the U-boat, I, I only recently sort of um, found out about this, but um, he um, he sunk a, I think it's a Greek merchant ship off the Scilly Isles, but he actually ends up rescuing pretty much all the crew. I've um, seen this in contemporary newspapers under the heading, not all U-boat captains are monsters. Right, yeah, and I think I think there might be a I think there's a memorial somewhere to this to him doing this. Mm. But um, in um, uh, with the capture of the U-boat 35, it's uh, Lewis Lord Mountbatten who's got a sort of d- destroyer flotilla, and they hunt they they manage to sort of hunt the the U-35, um, depth charge it. It's um, the the Germans scuttle it, um, but Mountbatten actually um, uh, manages to save the crew, and it's one of those rare instances. I'm not a, I'm not a massive expert on 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 the U-boats, but it's it's one of the rare instances where the entire crew of a U-boat is actually um, saved. And so um, when they are um, they come to um, to um, a port 
in um, England. Um, and there's a lot of press coverage of this, actually. Like Daily Mirror, um, Daily Mail in particular, have big spreads, lots of pictures. Um, and there's uh, a lot of newsreel coverage as well. Um, and it's coverage of the British um, uh, seamen sort of waving goodbye um, as the crew of the U-35 uh, go down the gangplank. Um, and they, um, it's very, it's, it's, it's reported to be a very sort of jo jokey, jovial atmosphere. Um, they single out one of the um, crew of the U-35, they call Blondie, apparently. Um, and they sing this song called Good Old Blondie to him as he walks down the gangplank. And it's reported that this, this one um, uh, U-boat crew could speak English quite well and sort of bonded with them on the, on the journey to England. Um, the U-boat captain then comes down and he shakes hands with the British officers um, as if, um, they sort of say, as if it's in some token of a heroic act. Um, so there's a lot of respect um, and a lot of um, what what the um, newsreel commentators call a sort of camaraderie between the British and German sailors. Um, so it's a very um, it's a very interesting episode. Um, it is, isn't it? Because you think only there's very few people who understand what it's like to be a submariner and other submariners obviously are going to get you aren't they yeah yeah um so i mean yeah in the, in the sort of north sea they're, they're hunting each other but i think it's sort of yeah there is at least it's reported this way in the press that there is this camaraderie there's pictures of them uh, swapping cigarettes um there's reports of them the british navy men sort of uh, shouting jokes at the german crew like come join the navy You've, now you've cap you captured you know switch sides um, <laughs> so yeah i mean it was it was really um it was really um really interesting when i sort of discovered this this sort of spread in the the papers of um of this um crew being um arriving in in england let's talk a bit more about what it was like for them in england um not just the u thirty five but German prisons in general. You mentioned Grisdale Hall. Tell us about it um you mentioned roughly where it is what is it um, I'm guessing big manor house and what was it like being there so yeah Grisdale Hall uh causes a lot of controversy uh in these these first months it's where the um so there's the two camps the one in oldham and and, and Grisdale uh Oldham is for other ranks. Mm. And that gets a lot of interest with um, um, crowds of um, report, reportedly crowds of, of British um, locals in the Oldham area actually sort of scaling a, a nearby hill to go and view these captives um, and need to be ushered away by the police. And that's that's the other ranks that are held there. Uh, Grisdale's for officers. Mm. Uh, it's an it's an old um, sort of manor house, as you say. Uh, in the Lake District, I think it's sort of rebuilt, uh, sort of nineteen early nineteen hundreds. It's actually pulled down in the nineteen fifties, but um, it is uh, an absolutely beautiful place to be a prisoner of war. Um, and again, um, the Daily Mail sort of um, publish a lot of photographs, and it's of um, these officers enjoying a nice walk around the grounds. Um, 
you look on a picture and the, the sort of the, the British guard is is not he just looks like he's having a sort of walk alongside them. He's not really guarding them. Mm. But there's pictures of them reading in a nice library. There's a there's a, a great one of them all around the piano, having a sing song, listening to the radio. Um, and um, the reports in in some of the local news uh, and national news um, sort of they say this isn't a prisoner of war camp. This is a holiday resort. This is a spa. Um, and um, they, they sort of say, you know, it's, a, it's the conditions that, you know, the hard work in Brit at the moment would, would love to go on holiday to. Um, it's actually, this uh, is raised in Parliament because by sort of uh, December um, 39, there's only about 21 officers there. Um, and the Grisdale as a camp can, can hold about 200. And it's, um, I think it's Colonel Josiah Wedgwood in, um, in Parliament asks the, um, asks the government, uh, you know, wouldn't it be cheaper to keep them at the Ritz? Um, <laughs> uh, so there's a lot of, you know, it's seemingly really unfair how luxurious <laughs> this accommodation is for, for the enemy. Um, but it also, yeah, and, and it sort of echoes debates back to the First World War of um, Donington Hall, where officers were captured. And there's very similar debates in in, in the opening months of the, the, the Second World War, because it raises all these questions of, you know, what is the correct conduct um, towards prisoners? It seems with Grisdale that the British are going above and beyond to accommodate the enemy. And actually, there's a concern um from several columnists, uh, I think um, Major Ernest Swinton has a column in, in, in the Daily Mail, and he, he, he warns that actually the conditions at Grisdale sort of betray um, a characteristic of the British of being too sentimental towards the defeated enemy in a sort of way that echoes the sort of end of a sporting match. And actually he's, he's quite concerned that the British um, public aren't making enough of this, and when and, and the British aren't in the right mindset to actually fight the war, you know these these are the enemy. We shouldn't be treating them in this fashion. So Grisdale Hall, it um, seems like a great place to be uh, if you are captured, but it does raise um, a lot of concern and debate over what the sort of correct conduct should be towards the captured enemy. It's quite naive, though, isn't it? Because you treat the enemy how you want your guys to be treated if they're taken prisoner. Yeah, definitely. And this is this is actually um, a this is this is something that a point that's raised throughout the war when um, in, in the sort of when the uh, letters to the editor sections of newspapers get quite um, quite heated, um, and it's a common a commonly um, uh, a common theme that. Um, when someone sort of um, suggests that, you know, we treat them far too kindly, the Germans would never sort of treat us like, like that if, if, if they win. Um, it's that, well, you know, a lot of, a lot of mothers of, of POWs um, in, in Germany say, well, we've got, to, we've got to maintain this level of respect, whatever your thoughts towards the Germans, um, because it is a reciprocal arrangement. Well, this is a total contrast to what was actually happening um, on the mainland in, in Germany and France. 
um, and everywhere around that, which brings us quite nicely to the next question, which is the Altmark incident, because this changed everything for the German period W's, didn't it? And why? Well, the Altmark, so um, the Altmark's a tanker, which actually resupplies the, um, and I always say this wrong, I think, the Graf Spee, uh, famous for the Battle of the River Plate, the pocket battleship. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the, the Altmark, um, the, the, the Graf Spee um, um, has taken a lot of, of, of Navy, uh, Royal Navy prisoners from the, uh, and merchant um, sailors from the ships it's um, sunk. They're transferred to the Altmark and it's en route back to Germany. Um, it's spotted. And I think it is Churchill who really makes a point of trying to rescue these, um, these prisoners on board the Altmark. It's pursued into Yossing Fjord. Again, hopefully I've got that pronunciation correct. Um, by some, some British destroyers. The Navy um, uh, boards and, uh, the Altmark and releases the prisoners. There's actually quite a sort of um, um, a bit of a firefight um, with several of the um, Altmark's crew um, being seriously wounded and I, th- I think a few killed. Um, on the one hand, this is reported as like sort of the, the um, a real victory for the Royal Navy and a, a couple of diarists at the time sort of... Um, it makes them think of like the uh, the sort of heroic old actions of the Royal Navy, Trafalgar even. Um, so for some, it's um, really like a, a boost and a tonic during the, the era of the, the sort of Boer War. It's quite an exciting um, incident. But the coverage in the press um, emphasises that the British um, captives on board were, were bullied um, and treated rather poorly. Now, this is actually an exaggeration, if not completely untrue. But there's no real attempt to um, to to um, to counter this this view. And so the the narrative is that there's this really perverse uh, German captain who's uh, referred to as like the, a really nasty Nazi and a big bearded Prussian bully in the press. That uh, sort of beat beat the um, the British sailors on board, um, and it leads into um, the sort of this story runs away a bit, and it leads into the sort of growing anti-German sentiment in Britain, um, and the um, social observers, the, the mass observation um, investigators. Um, they state that really it's with the Altmark we sort of get in a crystallisation of uh, anti-German attitudes and they consider it something of a turning point um, which feeds into um, um, the growing anti-German sentiment with the you know disastrous campaigns that follow in Norway, the fall of France as well. And the German prisoners of war during this time go from, say, with the U35 being these um, uh, uh, individuals that you can have a joke with and, and, you know, have a level of humanity, um, to the reportage essentially makes them out to be something far more dangerous. Um, And this leads into um, uh, them being the the government policy of actually removing um, German POWs from Britain 
to the dominions um, with when that 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 threat of invasion um, follows after the fall of France. It was feared amongst government circles that um, potentially German parachutists might um, free the German prisoners of war. There's a, there's around about a thousand, a little over a thousand in Britain at the time, and so they decide to to um, actually transport them to to Canada, Newfoundland. Um, and elsewhere in the empire to remove that threat, but the Altmark and and and, and what follows with the um, removal of German prisoners. At this time, we see that yeah, there's a sort of changing character. Um, the, the character of these German POWs has changed from something that from a person that you could have a laugh and a joke with a little bit to some someone to be incredibly wary of because they are incredibly dangerous. One thing they do at the beginning of World War One with um, duffers and wounded men and people that aren't going to be any use to the war effort is organise exchanges. Um, are there any of those in World War Two? There are there there, there are a couple uh, in forty three, I think, mm-hmm. um, and and later on in forty four. Um, the one that um, interested me the most was actually a mooted exchange. It didn't actually happen. Um, but it's in uh, sort of October 41 time. It's the first time they've, uh, Germany and Britain have discussed a possible exchange of infirm and sick prisoners. And it gets quite a lot of coverage because it's quite hopeful news, especially to the families of the British POWs in Germany, that there's going to be this possible exchange. Um, And at New Haven, there's two hospital ships that are ready to sail to the French coast. Um, they've got um, a number of German um, POWs, as well as some internees, I think, um, ready to transport, to pick up um, around 1,000, 1,500 um, British prisoners of war and bring them back. Uh, unfortunately, this, um, at the, 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 the sort of 12, uh, 11th hour, uh, hopes are dashed, the, the the lights on the ships go out, and it's because the Germans and British don't agree, can't find an agreement. The Germans actually, um, because they've got the numerical advantage in terms of how many British prisoners they've got, they argue it's an unfair exchange. Um, and so the exchange doesn't go ahead. Um, but there's a lot of, the, again, there's a bit of investigation into, into public attitudes towards the exchange which is quite revealing. There's a real mixture. Um, on the one hand, people are very, very disappointed this exchange can't get through because they, you know, sick and wounded, should, should, there should be an attempt to be um, returned. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a belief among certain sections of the public that essentially it's just classic German treachery, classic German character of trying to get the best out of a situation. Um but there's also some people who argue that exchanges didn't seem war, which I found a very interesting um, sort of viewpoint. They believe that such prisoner of war exchanges shouldn't actually take place. Um, and in fact, w- would be unhelpful because you might um, you might send German prisoners of war who have some kind of intel or, or, or understanding of Britain back home. And finally, the sort of other element in this is, is Rudolf Hess. Um, there's rumours that um, 
the reason why the exchange didn't play, take place in 41 was because um, Germany had asked um, Britain to include Hess, who'd obviously crashed in Scotland um, and become a prisoner in the exchange. Um, I so, don't think so. <laughs> I would, you can I have back a guy that. with a broken leg who's not going to be any use. You're not having a Nazi leader back. I don't yeah, think yeah, so. Yeah, um, so yeah, uh, there are a number, and, and, and really the, the big event that um, complicates um, discussions of exchanges is the shackling crisis, which happens a year after, around about the same time in October 1942, um, when uh, the Germans discover that during the commando raids on Sark and later Dieppe, that um, uh, a number of German sort of uh, soldiers have had their hands bound uh, by the commandos um, who uh, don't want them to destroy documents and want to, you know, take them prisoner and bring them back for intel. And this um, sort of unravels in a big reprisal cycle where Germany um, um, manacles uh, several thousand prisoners in, in Germany, including a lot of Canadians. The um, British decide to respond in kind, but at the end recognise that British public opinion can't really countenance uh, such reprisals um, and, and and after that really um, it sort of it complicates any discussions it's sort of some people turn it sort of, sort of the end of the gentlemanly period of the war um, in terms of, of, of prisoner of war discussions um, although it's weird because they have gone through exactly the same thing in world war one with a big thing in parliament and a big shitstorm over not of the germans um retaliating to supposed bad treatment of a u-boat crew that were being held yeah. in england and they've just gone and done exactly the same thing again it's it's exactly that um sort of churchill recognizes he can't win in this battle of wills um and, and sort of trying to manage public opinion and he goes back and looks at that the the the, the um uh, i think it's treating um Sub submariners as war criminals during the First World War. Mm-hmm. Britain says they are war criminals, and that doesn't really go down well because I think in the First World War, Germany then starts moving um, sort of uh, upper class prisoners towards much uh, worse accommodation. They put them um, in shit accommodation and they locked yeah. them right down with no exercise and things. It's just off the top of my head recollection, but yeah, they went for yeah. officers. Yeah, and yeah, and as a result, I mean, yeah, he, he sort of recognises that, um, in terms of like trying to battle with Hitler in a sort of reprisal cycle, there's no way that British public opinion is going to sort of win out over Hitler's Hitler's will to to make the most out of a situation. Um, it's quite interesting with the the sort of there's a little bit of discussion in the press of the the shackling um, crisis. And again, the views of the British public, people who write in, are quite um, varied. Some just say, don't bother even trying to attempt to um, uh, match Hitler in this game. There's one that sticks out in my memory is that actually, and this is like sort of the opposite end of sort of the spectrum. It says, um, it's it's an older gentleman who argues, well, actually, rather than shackling in kind German prisoners of war in response what you should do is actually try and bomb level an entire German city or even better an Italian 
city. And then that way Mussolini can press Hitler to uh, release them. And it's quite a bizarre argument he puts forward um, because it all, he, he sort of, he, he's talking about um, trying to, trying to end this shackling crisis through a very, you know, attacking um, non-combatants. Uh, that's just one that sticks out in my memories <laughs> um, of the episode. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Moving forward, uh, quite a few years forward uh, to D-Day in June 1944, um, how many prisoners of war actually ended up in England? And was their reception as positive as it was in 1939? Because at this point, by now, uh, the British had gotten wind of what happened at Salabla 3. So for people who don't know what we're talking about, the Great Escape, um, because a group of prisoners of war were executed at that time. Yeah, so with um, with the um, D-Day landings, the subsequent breakout um, uh, into France, um, uh, there's a lot of, of, of German prisoners of war taken. Not all Germans, I might add. Um, there's reports, uh, you know, that, that, that you've got the sort of um, troops that have been brought over from Russia, various nationalities. When I say German prisoners of war, it's sort of just the catch-all term in terms of... Um, how they're categorised, but um, loads of, of a mounting number of, of prisoners captured. Initially, they have to be transported back across the channel, but this creates a problem in terms of the um, spacing camps, which have been taken up by the Italians that have been brought across um, to work the fields. Um, there's an agreement with the, the US called the 50-50 agreement, whereby... Um, a number of the German POWs captured um, by British um, forces are actually transferred to American custody. Um, well, they're still actually in British custody technically, but they'll be transported across to the US, and that solves some of the um, some of the uh, problems with the growing number. But it's from this point that the POW population in Britain of Germans just continues to increase right through to the end of the war when there's about 200,000. Um, and that continues to increase after the war um, as uh, they <clears throat> begin to be used as agricultural workers. Um, Britain actually wants to take more in. 
And so the number eventually peaks around September 1946 at just over 400,000. Um, and yeah, I think during this time, a lot's happened. And I think the, 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 the execution of the great escapers um, had just happened. It just been discussed in Parliament just prior to the, the D-Day landings. And this, um, it does seem to harden attitudes towards German POWs, but amongst those people who didn't like them to begin with. And in, in, in local newspapers, there are still debates um, where a person will write in, and there's one, I think, in, I think it's in the Gloucestershire Echo, I think, it's about um, the burial of, of four German prisoners of war. And he notes in, in disgust that the Schwarzsteca, um flag has been draped across their coffins. And he talks about how, you know, um, the, the execution of the great escapers. And he's really, essentially really pissed off by this um, funeral in light of these executions. But then a sort of debate emerges interestingly, where some people come in and defend uh, this burial and say, well, the, the, the execution of the great escapers is, is, is horrific, but that doesn't, doesn't mean as, as, as Brits we can undermine our own values and our own um, conduct towards the enemy. So it does um, provoke some pretty, um, pretty extreme attitudes. Um, and the other, the other one I remember is a bit later on um, in, in 44 is a, a um, reverend in London. He organises, he wants to organise some comforts and gifts for the German POWs in Britain um, um, for the sort of upcoming Christmas period. And one of his colleagues in the church, another reverend, um, he actually says, yes, sure, I'll donate um, something to the cause. And it's actually a tin of rat poison, um, which goes... <laughs> and it, there's a big press sort of debacle over this. He says it's, it's a joke. It's charming, really, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but, it, yeah, again, it, it indicates that attitudes are, are, are much more, um, I think, a, a lot more extreme than earlier on in the war. Um, and there's a lot more, there's a growing sort of anti-German sentiment and hatred, um, which, it, you know, is intertwined with the treatment of, of German p prisoners of war. You talk about that. I really want to know. So the British liberate Bergen-Belsen in 45. And obviously, to, this is like opening up to the world, just the horrific nature of the final solution and the Holocaust. Did this influence treatment of German prisoners of war? I, th I think one of the, the key differences I noted, um, certainly in, in, in scouring through um, the press, is that suddenly um, the debates um, in sort of letters to the editor and, and, and editorials on the treatment of German prisoners of war so suddenly just disappears, which may be sort of editorial um, um, editors, uh, editors not publishing letters and things about concerns about or debates about the treatment of prisoners. Um, the only real debate um, and, and something that's tied into the, the stories coming out of Bergen-Belsen. But not only that, the, the, the stories at the time 
that are emerging from British POWs who are being evacuated, uh, who, are, who are brought back to Britain, who've been on the death marches across Poland um, with their store, their horrific stories. The, the focus is really on the rations that are being given to German prisoners of war in uh, who are working on the land in Britain. And there's a, as there's a big uproar about, um, you know, juxtaposing the sort of pictures of well-fed German prisoners of war in, in British fields who are seemingly having a laugh and a joke with the horrific images that are coming out of, um, out of central Europe. Um, and this does, I think, have a real, um, a real uh, impact on people's attitudes. And it seems like it silences even though, even those people who, who, you know, have maintained that the average German isn't this sort of devil or inherently bellicose um, person, even those voices seem to be silenced um, in the sort of April, May, May period, definitely. So let's go into post-war. So post-war 1946, um, there were still German uh, prisoners of war in Britain, obviously. Um, what are they still doing now? Because the war is pretty much over. Um, and have the British attitude changed at all towards them? Um, so I think with... I mean, the reason, there's, there's sort of several reasons you could point towards. I mean, first, just the logistics of getting hundreds of thousands of prisoners um, repatriated when you've got a lot a lot of other things to do post-war as well um, is one of the reasons why they stick around. But really, um, um, the German prisoners of war are really crucial. They play a, a, a really significant role in agriculture, in post-war Britain, and the Ministry of Agriculture is particularly keen from 45 right up to 48 to retain um, German prisoners of war as agricultural labourers. Um, there is a softening of attitude. I might just add, like, it's not just agriculture they work in. Actually, um, over time, they, they the German prisoners begin to work in, in a variety of um, different employments, um, sort of brick making, uh, road mending, a host of different um, employments, but it's mainly agriculture that they're that they're uh, working in. And I think from as the distance to the end of the war increases, and around the sort of um, beginning of 1946, there's a softening of attitudes or at least a sort of, there's been enough breathing space after the horrors of, of, of Belson um, and those, those um, the disclosure of those, um, those, those horrors. Yeah. Um, it's Henry Falk, actually, who, who notes this change in his book on re-education. He's a prominent figure in the re-education of German prisoners of war and wrote a sort of a, a, social, a sociological study of, mm-hmm. of re-education. He notes that it's around sort of um, the turn of 46 that attitudes begin to soften. And it's through 46, actually, that in local newspapers, for instance, reporters go into the camps and start to um, start to sort of, uh, you know, the, the photograph and, and, and talk to the German prisoners. And one that sticks out in my, my mind is uh, I think it's sort of uh, September 1946. I think it's uh, Cheltenham, maybe the Cheltenham Chronicle. They go into Leckhampton Court 
which is again it's a it's a sort of medieval manor house, but it's got other ranks. Quite lucky, um, and it's re- re- really beautiful surroundings. But the report, the, the 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 piece the journalist writes includes uh, two pictures, and ones of um, uh, ones of a prisoner with who's tamed a jackdaw. He's named Betty, and it's sitting on top of his head. <laughs> <laughs> and the others of um so you've got this one picture of this guy with the, the jackdaw Betty that he's tamed, and another picture of all the German POWs around a sort of water feature um with a beautiful sort of garden that they've made. And I think it's stories like this. Um when I immediately saw that that sort of spread and that news story, I just immediately thought of George Orwell, who called, you know called the Brits, you know, pigeon fanciers and flower lovers. And it seems like in 1946, after um, the sort of, uh, the the Germans have been so dehumanised by these stories from from um, uh, extermination camps and concentration camps, that there's almost a sort of rehumanising of them through these stories. And I think over the course of 1946, um, these stories allow... Um, German prisoners to be shown to be not so different from Brits. They have hobbies, they have lives. Um, Which is really interesting because we've got to the point where we start talking about fraternisation because some of these men have been in Britain for years now, haven't they? So when is this finally allowed? And then surely you must get um, the knock-on effect of this, which is marriage, love, people staying in the UK and not going back to Germany? Yeah, definitely. So as as the... um, as the POWs are sort of rehumanized, the whole question of when are you going to let them outside camps becomes the issue. And the argument that is put forward, particularly by um, Richard Stokes, who's a Labour MP in Parliament, he argues, well, it's hypocritical for the British to preach and try and teach German prisoners the merits of democracy in the re-education program, but then confine them behind camps. Mm. And he argues, well, surely this is, you know, the confinement of people behind camps is something that we were fighting against. Um, so, and, and the fraternisation regulations, which have been in force and have evolved throughout the war, become seen as this really petty, um, these petty rules like fining one of the cases that, Stokes brings up in the in Parliament is the woman got fined one pound for throwing a bit of cake over a barbed wire fence to a, a prisoner. Shame it, on her. Yeah, yeah. It, <laughs> it's just stuff like that just seems really petty to people. And there's also a growing um, desire, particularly from the sort of um, churches and religious groups, to um, to reach out to the prisoners. And there's a belief that actually, you know, having engaging, ex-enemies engaging with each other yeah. will, will help towards future peace. Um, a lot of pressure is put on the government and it's sort of Christmas 1946 where they up the game. Um, the people who were asking for fraternisation to be relaxed by saying Christmas is the perfect time really to do this. And so the government finally sort of... Um, um, allow this um i think the police at the time 
um, are also pushing for it, certain members of the, the, the police, because I think they're just a bit sick of having to try and police it. Yeah. Fraternisation is a very difficult thing to police. Um, um, and so they allow it at Christmas and POWs of good nature who've sort of shown themselves to be decent fellas. Um, they're allowed to accept invitations from private homes to spend Christmas. And it's from that point um, that regulations are continued to relax um, over the course of early 1947. They're allowed to go to football games. They're allowed to um, uh, sort of go unescorted five miles away from the camps. But this raises the question of, well, what if they meet a, a woman that they quite fancy? Um, because while fraternisation sort of socially is allowed, sexual fraternisation is still banned. Um, it's still, um, it's what's termed as improperly consorting um, with British women. And there's a number of court martials that take place um, of German POWs who are charged with improperly consorting with um with women. Sometimes this involves quite young uh, teenagers. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes um, um, there's sort of a, an attitude that it's the women who are at fault. They're sort of Jezebels tempting these. Oh, isn't men. it always the case? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but on the other, I mean, when, when I think about it more, I, I, it's, there must be an element of grooming as well. Um, yeah. in these cases but there's a you know, yeah there's a lot of interest in sort of press reports about women and POWs being find, found behind bushes and in sort of uh, sometimes in military camps um, by the police. Um, you have two really good examples in your book though um, one which is Monica Kahn um, and um, Herman uh, I think it's Ganter yeah and um, Olive Reynolds and uh, Werner Vetter could you tell us about one of those? Yeah, sure. I mean, I'll, I'll just briefly mention uh, Monica Cannon, Herman Ganter. It's uh, it's it's a I find it a brilliant story. Monica Cannon, who's an ATS sergeant, she's 22, and she works at, uh, in Donington at an ordnance depot, and she meets Herman Ganter, um, who's doing some work there, um, a, a German POW, and I think it's just she's like right. I love him. I'm going to marry him, and no, no, uh, no legislation is going to get in the way. So they actually marry. Um, she's actually charged with the false uh, insertion of a name in a marriage register because her and uh, Ganter actually go and get married um, while it's illegal. Um, the uh, registrar didn't see anything wrong with it. I think Monica's. I think Herman Ganter. He says that yes, I've got a German last name, but I'm actually from Liverpool. I don't know if he actually did most of the That's smart. I don't know if he did any talk. I mean, he might have just nodded because his accent might give it away. I don't know. Um, but they marry, and it raises this whole question of, like, well, is this marriage legal or not? Um, and to, to, to come to the end of that story, well, the, the government decides, well, they fine Monica, I think, £4 in the end. And I think a supervisor actually, her, her supervisor actually pays it off. But they allow the marriage to stand. And it's around the same time that they've decided this, that the story of Olive Reynolds and Werner Vetter um, makes front page, well, near front page news. Um, Vetter is charged for improperly consorting with Olive. 
Um, and he's banged to rights, really, because that is court martial. Olive's there with Janet, who is their baby girl. So it's <laughs> she brings the evidence to to the court. Um, but uh, he's sentenced to 12 months imprisonment in a Lodgemore camp in Sheffield. And there's a massive public outcry um, because he makes a really impassioned plea in court. He says, you've, you've denied my right to love. Um, and oh, that's always how you're going to get a British audience, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And there's people who sort of, um, uh, you know, say, you know, I'm trying, I'm doing a petition to um, to the government. Um, you know, Vetter's stories. He, he says, oh, I had my life had no meaning until I met met Olive. She was a person who didn't look at me as a pri- like a prisoner. Uh, I was just another human. Um, and so this story. Um, uh, his, his court martial is eventually um, overturned, and the uh, authorities review all the cases that um, have been sent them of women wanting to marry German prisoners of war, and then eventually allow allow this to happen. Um, I think roughly there's about 750 plus marriages um, recorded. But we don't know if, you know, the German period of went back home after repatriation, came back and maybe married later on. Um, or people yeah. just lived in sin, inverted commas, because they didn't want the hassle. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's loads, uh, there's loads of, of, of uh, interest in news reports on uh, relationships. There's uh, some women who simply um, let German prisoners of war live with them, essentially, and pretend mm. that their husbands... Um, there's a fantastic one I'd, I'd, I'd love to just briefly mention of uh, Doris Blake, um, who ends up, she meets um, Alec, who I think she's met before the war briefly. She's not had a terrific marriage, or at least has, is, is, not, um, is not happy. And they end up uh, stealing a racing yacht on the <laughs> south coast and sailing to France, where they're arrested. Um, uh, Doris Blake actually, I think, goes to prison for about a month, uh, mainly due to um, stealing a racing, a, a, a rather expensive racing yacht. Um, but again, it like Monica can, it shows this determination of the women of women to, you know, marry the person that they loved. Um, mm. That story is going to make Alina cry. <laughs> I would like to say, just unfor- unfortunately for for Olive. Um, Werner actually gets uh, deported. He wants to stay in the in Britain, but he gets mm. deported after um, uh, breaking and entering and thieving. Um, oh, that's not the kind of happy Hollywood ending Alina wanted. No, that one. Well, no. right, he gets deported for being a criminal. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he ends up finding someone else in Germany back home, and Olive sort of uh, she goes over, and then uh i think somehow she loses custody of her children it's really heartbreaking and it just um you know one thing i'd like to to point out it's on the one hand these stories of marriage and love are really sort of inspirational uh, and really quite moving but there's there's there are many that that don't work out as well um, where people like Werner turn out to be complete dicks yeah i mean there's a few i've been looking into the 1950s to try and sort of trace if um um, you know what happened to these relationships, or if they pop back into the news. And there's some, there's there's one or two sort of grisly murders. Um, you know, um, sort of uh, uh, quite abusive relationships that turn out. I mean, sorry, just, um, lovely stories of love and 
you know, ex-enemies coming together and not, not viewing each other as enemies, but there's also, you know, real human um, emotion and, and, and it can be quite, uh, can turn out not, not great in the end. Let's finish it off. So when were the last POWs released and what happened to them? Not each and every single one, but just like a broad look at what happened to the last of them. Uh, so about June, July 1948, most have been repatriated. Uh, mm-hmm. There's been a big campaign that was organised by Victor Galantz to um, press the government um, to to repatriate them. Uh, from about uh, October 1946, it's roughly 15,000 a month go home. Uh, depart in all places like Harwich, New Haven, um, and, and going to uh, back to Germany. Some wanted to stay, but their repatriation was up. Um, obviously, with you know the situation in Germany, there's quite a few POWs who do want to stay in, in Britain rather than going back to the uh, the Soviet zone. Mm. Um, and, and the devastation of of, of Germany really. Uh, there's a lot that also really want to go home and get back to their families. Um, the government actually offers um, POWs the um, opportunity to defer their repatriation for two years and take up a, a contract as a agricultural worker uh, to work on farms that would like them to stay. Uh, roughly about 20,000 take up this opportunity to stay. And I think around half end up settling permanently in Britain. Um, and, um, I mean, one of the things with the, the sort of POWs that stayed, it's at a time, obviously, we've got the, the wind rush and a lot of furore about um, migrants from, from the empire coming to, to Britain. And I think in this context, the German prisoners are sort of, they almost sort of... Um, due to their whiteness, sort of blend into society in a way that they sort of get forgotten about. Um, but everywhere I've been in terms of like local archives research, they stay over and go to a, a, a pub or something. And maybe someone gets chatting to me about um, my research. It's always, oh, yeah, no, I used to know. Yeah, my, my friend knew like uh, someone who had two Germans on their farm. Or, oh, yeah, there's a, there's a chap in... In town, who, who um, his, his dad was a, a POW, so they end up um, all over, really. Um, um, but it's, I think it's around ten thousand ish that, that, that elect to stay in Britain. Alan, I want to say thank you for joining us and filling a gap um, in historiography because a lot of the time we don't talk about German prisoners of war. We talk about British prisoners of war, Poles. Canadians, the French, we talk about everyone, everyone but the German prisoners of war. So thank you very much for joining us. No problem. It's been really nice. Thank you both. I know everyone says I know everyone says this um at the end of, of their sort of podcast session with you both, but it's been so good that you've you've both done this. Um it's been a real tonic during lockdown to to, to be introduced to so many new um, topics and themes of history so I just want to take the opportunity to thank you both Oh thank you so much Thank you. Join us tomorrow when Freya Gowley will be with us to talk all about the history of the home, she has a new book coming out which looks at 
art in the home and the home, I don't know, as a piece of art maybe, how we treat our personal space and how that changed massively in the 18th century. Uh, really, really interesting. And what's even more interesting is to go forward now and see how we're responding in similar ways uh, as a result of being forced to lock down for coronavirus. So don't miss that. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.